Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. American Leadership Forum's senior fellow Ann Rabel's long and distinguished career spans many prestigious leadership positions, such as Silicon Valley's County Council, Chair of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, and Chair of the Federal Election Commission in Washington, on which she continues to serve. Ann's very public indictment of her own committee's dysfunction created a firestorm of multimedia reaction, from applause to death threats. Anne talks to us about the FEC's work and why she believes it has failed to fulfill its function because of the political climate in D.C. and very structure of the committee. In May 2015, Ravel told the New York Times that it is unlikely that the FEC will be able to rein in financial abuses in the 2016 presidential campaign. The likelihood of the laws being enforced is slim, she said. I never want to give up, but I'm not under any illusions. Let's listen and learn more about her leadership story. And you went through ALF in 1999. You're a proud member of class 11. Um, you know, as I was sort of reflecting on that time in our country's history, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, pre-ISIS, pre-9-11. I mean, it, it sort of feels like a different world than what we experienced today in 2016. And, you know, you shared the experience with some prominent folks, Susan Ford Dorsey, Fred Ferrer, people that are still here in the Valley uh, making a difference. So can you recall during that program year, you know, what was the conversation in class 11 like about the direction of the country and leadership? My recollection of the discussions that we had were that they were more about how we could be leaders in the community by helping people who were disadvantaged, by working with the um, nonprofit agencies in the county to do more, which I thought was a really wonderful thing because I worked for the county at the time and had seen a number of the issues that were affecting people with um, mental issues and physical issues and just economic problems that existed even then in the heart of what was the new Silicon Valley then. It feels right now, right, that things have to get really bad before they get better. And I just wonder if there was sort of this... I don't want to say complacency, but a a calm and a comfort around where we were. I don't think there's any question that that's the case. I think that um, it was interesting for our class, as it is for every class, to have people who were representative of business and people who were from the public sector and people from the nonprofit sector. But everybody seemed to be in sync. You were appointed by California Governor Jerry Brown in 2011 to chair the California Fair Political Practices Commission. What did you walk into, and what do you feel like you accomplished during that time? And how long was your tenure there? Uh, Well, my tenure was supposed to be four years. The terms are four years. I saw an article in the New York Times, actually, an editorial chastising President Obama for not having filled the position at the FEC. What I thought I was doing when I was asked if I'd be willing to be vetted is helping out the president because I did not think that I was ever going to be confirmed. And the reason for that is mm-hmm. that um, I did two things at the, F- at the FPPC. Um, one was to try to reform some of the processes to make sure that there was due process for everybody because I've worked with political people all my career right. and I, I 
don't like the approach of um, regulation that looks at them as if they're venal or evil. Actually, I think most people go into politics with a good heart, with <laughs> yeah. a really good heart, yeah. thinking that they can make a difference. I would rather see uh, regulations and other activities that are only dealing with the most serious transgressions mm -hmm. and with those things that have an impact on public trust in government. Right. But right. beyond that, I was trying to totally reform the regulations system. and yeah. the system. And so I got a lot of criticism from uh, the press mm -hmm. and, and others, um, mm -hmm. some of the reformers, for having done those things. And on the other hand, I also, having experienced government, uh, believe wholeheartedly in transparency. Yeah. I think that that is one of the things that makes people trust their government less, is if they feel that things are not transparent. I took a case um, all the way to the California Supreme Court when I was there uh, to ensure that there would be transparency over um, donors in fact, they mm -hmm. were donors from Arizona, and it turns out also from uh, right. Virginia and from other states, um, and they were all just pass-throughs, but nobody knew who was behind $15 million that was deposited in a Coming California, to the state. <laughs> that's right, right. A California campaign right before the election. Right. So I worked very hard to yeah. ensure that that information about who was behind the campaign contribution was disclosed. Did you walk into a, a culture or a, or a situation you felt was ready for that kind of a shakeup? When we did the litigation and went to the Supreme Court in a space of a week and a half, <laughs> and the Supreme Court came out with their decision on a Sunday that was unanimous on our behalf, the staff was energized. They sure. really felt that we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. Such an incredible challenge right now for us in the world of 140 characters and sound bites, right, to educate the public about what's real, um, presenting a full picture. This stuff's complicated. How do we break through and make it palatable and understandable for, for people whose work this isn't? You're right, and the concern about the media and also um, presenting information in a way that makes people understand why it's so important to their lives right. is really important. One of the fears I have when you look at political discourse, especially now, is that people don't understand how complicated it is to govern. Yeah how many different perspectives there are, and all of them have some amount of merit to them. Sure. And so making governmental decisions is extraordinarily difficult. Um, in particular, on the federal level. It is everywhere, actually, but sure. on, on the federal level, because there are so many interests and so many agencies with with specific knowledge of things yeah. that weigh in on questions that it's actually complicated 
to come to a conclusion. And often when the public sees that, they, they, it can be portrayed to them as, oh, they're just dragging their feet or right. they're unwilling to do something for us or it's so terrible that there's all this money in politics and money's evil and the millionaires are evil. Right. I, I think all of those things um, make people feel less confident in yeah. governmental processes. And, sure. And that's that's worrisome to me. So the question is, right, how, how do you, you how do you break through how it? do you shift that? How do you how do mm-hmm. you it it feels like we're sort of ripe for a revolution around media and around storytelling right. and that, you know, perhaps it's government that needs to take a look and say sure everything's on the internet sure everything's on our website but who's reading it right exactly. how do we do this in a way that is understandable and starts to break barriers down yes no misperceptions it, it, I, I don't have the magic answer to that sure. but i've given a lot of thought to it because for example the agency that i'm on now the federal election commission we provide lots of information but if you <laughs> just provide raw data yeah it's difficult for even reporters who work in this area all the time to understand what the correlations are. So it's important to show not just how um, these data points and other information um, connect with one another, but also why it's meaningful to people and why it has an impact on their lives. We have data that maybe could make changes in how people view how they vote or if they vote at all. The number of young people who voted in 2014 in California mm-hmm. is so abysmally low yeah. that one of the pundits pundits said about them that you have a greater chance if you're between 18 and 21 to be arrested in California than to vote. And that's terrible. Well, I think so. it speaks to just the lack of trust and lack of, right? And and I think it shows why the Bernie and Trump campaigns are so successful that, because it's, it's, it's this extreme, different, outside-of-the-box kind of uh, rhetoric and strategy that we're, we're hearing, right? Right. Yeah. And you're, you're at, right. But... In, in my view, they're more worrisome for our democracy in some ways because not that I'm taking any positions on any candidate, but the rhetoric, the angry, yeah. nasty rhetoric um, doesn't end with good solutions for the public. Sure. It just makes people angry and doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to continue to pr- participate. In fact, many of them will be dropping out because they don't feel that they can get what they think they were able to get. And that that is really, I think, problematic. And hopefully there's folks, though, that are rallying and getting involved, right? Yes. Because, yeah, they're they're troubled, they're concerned. It's, yeah, we'll see what happens in November. Right. No, we will. And, <laughs> we'll and I absolutely hope so. I yeah. mean, I uh, from whatever perspective people have, political sure. perspective, it's being involved that's important because when you look at the statistics of people who contribute despite the the bernie numbers there's still fewer people who are involved fewer people who um, vote than ever and that speaks to a real problem in our country 
I want to talk a little bit about and get to your work uh, at the FEC when you were tapped by the Obama administration unexpectedly. And, you know, sometimes doors just open and you got to walk mm-hmm. through, right? Right? It's true. Um, what a time to be involved in campaign finance reform with Citizens United and everything else that, that uh, has come before the, the involved the FEC. That's funny because when I first got to the FEC, yeah. I went around and talked to everybody who was involved in campaign finance in one way, lawyers and, sure. and some elected people and just members of the community. And one of the most well-known lawyers in campaign finance said to me, nobody cares about this issue. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's true. In California, people cared about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're going to we're going to make people care about yes, it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. How how has this experience been different? I mean, obviously it's just so huge, so big and with the presidential mm-hmm. election and just the incredible amount of money that's being spent on both sides, right? Right. Uh, uh, Double is what I read, too, you know, since Citizens United, double the amount of money in the 2012 campaign um, than ever before in in a federal election. So just in terms of the Sacramento and the D.C. experience, is there a similar culture? I mean, what did you experience? How did you try to start to break through? In California, I was chair. I could act for the commission in between meetings. I was the only full-time employee. The other commissioners were not. I would go and and meet with the high-level people in the Republican Party. I had Republicans on my commission. Uh, We all agreed. We all agreed on ways of going forward. And if they didn't agree, then there were ways that we could work it out to reach agreement. DC is unlike that, completely unlike that. For one thing, the commission consists of six members. No more than three can be of one political party. And it requires four votes to do just about anything. And so because of that, uh, we, and because of the, the way that the commissioners, except for me, are appointed, Mm-hmm. or have been appointed, uh, people are much more entrenched in the congressional uh, stalemates and, and polarization, and therefore very little actually gets done right. that is of any significance to the election. You know, and you've been very vocal about that, which I find mm-hmm. brave and intriguing. And um, sort of at what point in your tenure here did you say enough? I'm going on The Daily Show. <laughs> right. Know? Well, having come from California, where I was able to work with my staff and do this amazing case, it was the first one in the country wow. where um, that amount of dark money was actually. Um, sort of brought into the light, not completely, mm-hmm. but uh, that there was an effort to do that. Uh, and I and my strong feelings about how the importance of disclosure for the public. Sure. Um, getting to the FEC and realizing I was never going to be able to do any of those things. I was never going to be able to do what was our mission yeah pretty frustrating yeah very frustrating a hard as a lawyer who believes in following the law and doing what what the congress intended we were supposed to do 
And so I'll tell you, it only took me a couple of weeks to realize this. <laughs> um, and I finally came to the conclusion as it was becoming more and more frustrating mm -hmm. uh, that it's important for me to tell the public that an agency that has so much importance yeah. in our federal system and so important in ensuring the integrity of the electoral process, we're not functioning yeah. as the public anticipates that we are functioning. So I, I think it's an obligation to tell them. Were you approached by The Daily Show, or how did you? I, we, everyone on the commission was approached by The Daily Show. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And I agreed to do it. One other commissioner also agreed to do it, but they sure. kind of left her on the cutting room floor ah, um, okay. because I'm so much more humorous. No. <laughs> it happens. Uh, it's yes, a brutal world, I, film. It is brutal. Um, but... But yeah. so I think the reason that The Daily Show was most interested, though, was I had previously uh, been interviewed for The New York Times and had actually um, said in a front page article that the commission was dysfunctional. I, of course, had seen The Daily Show. Um, <laughs> and so I knew that some people were embarrassed and some people came out better. But my interview, as it progressed, it was about an hour and a half long. And at about an hour, yeah. I started to think, wait a minute. This I is a three-minute segment. Gonna, yeah. I don't know how they're going to cut any of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do they so, do that? Best of the best. You need right, a lot of footage before. I, a lot of footage. <laughs> and so I, I started yeah. to become just slightly concerned, but actually you could tell that they were on yeah. my side. Yeah. Do we package things entertainingly? Is that how we, well, you know, maybe start reaching? I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think that is certainly part of it, is yeah. it has to be packaged entertainingly. But I think you mentioned, and I think about this a lot in California, the the mother who has two jobs and, sure. you know, a number of children and just doesn't have the time to devote to these things yeah. and, and has to understand why her life is in part the way it is because of decisions that are being made at the government level. Connecting those dots, right? Connecting those dots yeah. is really important. So did anything change after you started to become more public about um, your frustration with the with the commission's lack of effectiveness? Yeah, what changed was there's much more public awareness mm -hmm. of the FEC, so that certainly has changed, and I think for the better. For example, there's recently been uh, legislation introduced to in Congress to reform the FEC and its composition and um, functioning and the it was introduced by Senator Udall and he mentioned he quoted me in his mm -hmm. press release so I think bringing it to the fore has been positive as to the Commission itself I do believe that there is some sense of awareness um, by the commissioners who are the who vote as a block, always as a block, mm -hmm. um, that they are being scrutinized and that it's uh, becoming more public what they're doing. On the whole, uh, it hasn't changed the ultimate result. 
it's going to be slow. It is slow. <laughs> it's it going to be slow. It is definitely going to be slow. And hopefully yeah. it's going to provide the impetus for more systemic changes um, through yeah. uh, congressional change. Because now, I mean, you mentioned it, uh, Trump, Bernie, even Hillary, every every candidate has spoken about campaign finance. Yeah and about the system, and even about needing to reform the FEC. So I think that- There's common ground. It has, exactly, yeah. there is common ground. And if you look at the issues of money and politics, it's a bipartisan question. Yeah. Something like 80% of the American public, of whether they're independent, Democrats, Republicans, they think there's something wrong with the system and that it needs to be reformed. You know, in ALF, we talk about um, reframing what compromise is, right? And I know when I went through the program, Class 25, um, it, it was a real moment for me when we talked about, you know, instead of my side giving a bit and your side giving a bit, and we it's almost framed like we each lose something, right? What... Uh, would it look like if we came up with a third side, with a, with a third option, and we co-created it? Um, could a regulatory body like the FEC be ready for that kind of a conversation? I think some regulatory bodies are ready for that. This particular uh, body with the composition on it isn't. But I firmly believe that we will move from that in this country. Yeah. Sometimes things, like we said, need to get worse before they get right. better, right? Yeah. What what qualities do leaders need to possess and what practices do they need to, um, would you say, uh, put, into, put into play uh, in 2016 to get us unstuck? And perhaps the second part of that question is, you know, how do we now start using what we're seeing on the national stage to educate high school students and younger right. younger kids about here's what can happen. Mm -hmm. This is why it's happening. Um, so, so first, a bit about you know, from your perspective, what what do leaders, what do we need in leaders right now in 2016 to get us unstuck? Mm -hmm. If we're talking about our elected officials, um, th they recognize. Uh, that they're in a really difficult place because of the way that the campaign finance system has operated, because of the fact that the country itself, and that is those who are involved in politics themselves have become polarized. Mm. Um, and so, and I, there's a book called The Big Sort about how people are actually living with and only reading things that comport sure. with their already existing views. Like my Facebook feed, <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, that's what people do is. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and, I mean, even worse, in the political realm, speaking of Facebook, is because campaigns can micro-target, and they micro-target with amazing information that Facebook gives them, Google can give them, yeah. Twitter can give them, they know so much about people that they can change uh, the message yeah. from household to household. So targeted. It's yeah. so targeted that you're never hearing the full message. You're never able to compare uh, 
opinions or views because you're not getting them. Yeah. And I think, you have to choose to get them at this point, right? right? You have to seek them out. Exactly. It's not like a newspaper of old, right? Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. So leaders, I think, number one, I I firmly believe, and this is back to campaign finance issues, they need to to actually have incentives to talk to all their constituents, not just yeah. the few. I was having a conversation with a, a colleague of mine. In his world, he is surrounded by people that are very, very um, pro-Democrat, pro-Hillary. Mm-hmm. And he says, I just, I don't understand. And I asked him, I said, have you ever sat down and just talked with someone who's voting for Donald Trump? And don't don't come up with the, the response in your head. Just listen. And when they're done talking, right. say, can you tell me more about that? Mm-hmm. You know, and just dig and dig and see, you know, where, where you get. I mean, I think that, and you said... You know, there's the for good leaders to be great leaders and effective, um, they have to have the time to deeply invest in in who right. their constituents are and really have a deep understanding mm-hmm. of that. No, I think that's true. And you know, you asked about uh, sort of my coming to the commission. When I first came, as I said, I talked to everybody, and I talked to everybody. I went to the Cato yeah. Institute and talked to people. Right. I went to the top. Republican, very conservative lawyer and who does um, campaign finance. I really wanted to get people's perspective about why things were broken and sure. how um, I could make a change. And, and I will say, um, what worries me about my continued tenure on the commission, honestly, I've already developed a view of the futility of some of what sure. I've tried to do. And I think about that from time to time because sometimes I think, you know, maybe I need to try some more, but I do think it's futile. Yeah. You've made your dent, I think, in terms of some, just the, the raising the awareness. Oh, yeah. 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 That's, that's been the, the role that you've been called to play, right? right? I started doing some reading about um, things that John Gardner said yeah. because of the ALF and because of that powerful influence. Um, and one, one of the things he did talk about was how there are times when people have to stand up and have to um, speak out when there's something that is So I felt sort of vindicated about that. He approves. Yeah. <laughs> John Gardner approves. John Gardner approves. Yeah. ALF is dedicated to building a better Silicon Valley community by joining and strengthening leaders to serve the common good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes. Please visit us online at alfsv.org.